0: Industry Focus. The podcast that dives into a different sector of the
1: stock market each day.
0: I'm your host, Emily Flippin.
1: I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today, we're talking financials.
0: Today, we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard!
1: Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today, we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Monday, December 14th. I'm your host, Jason Moser. And on this week's financial show, we're digging a little deeper into a banking services company called Encino. We'll also talk about the growing exodus from Silicon Valley as companies and employees move elsewhere, and we'll kick around some of the real estate stocks poised to benefit from that movement. Of course, we'll wrap up the show with one to watch, as we like to do every week. Joining me this week, he's back in the saddle at Certified Financial Planner, it's Mr. Matt Frankel. Matt, how's everything going?
0: pretty good. I missed you guys last week, so it's good to be back on
1: the show well you know it's nice to have you back and then for the record I mean you know last week for uh for those of you who were listening we we did have a very fun interview with CEO and founder of live person mr. Rob lacasio I really enjoyed that conversation so I hope that the folks who who were able to catch that interview enjoyed it Rob talked about a new banking concept in Bella uh Bella Bank that that just is it's it's really cool from a number of different angles and he there was this one little uh, one one part uh, to, to the to the service to, 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 you know, what they're offering called uh karma. And essentially it's just this opportunity to, you know, help help shell out a few bucks to people that you know or don't know here and there. Just just kind of out of out of that karmic nature you know it was just it was just a really neat sort of different take on banking compassionate banking is what he referred to it as and um, always enjoy catching up with Rob so if you missed last week's show go back and listen to it Rob is just a passionate guy live person is doing a lot of cool stuff stock has done tremendously over the past several years and um, you know just just a just, just a, a really nice guy to talk to. Just listening to his entrepreneurial journey and and seeing all the success that they're having there with live person. Uh, but this week, Matt, we're going to jump into a specific company as I mentioned in the read in there, Encino. And Encino, for those of you who aren't familiar, Encino, this is a new IPO. Uh, just came out from July of this year of twenty twenty, uh still just just really getting getting its feet underneath it. It's only reported two quarters worth of results. Um very fascinating business and I, I think will probably get everyone's attention, Matt, when I say the term SaaS. Right. Yeah. So why don't you go ahead and tell our listeners what is Encino and what does
0: Encino do? Yeah. So they are a SaaS company. Like how many times do I get to say that on this show? Um <laughs> But it, it, their goal is to essentially bring banks into the 21st century. They offer what they call their bank operating system that uses some artificial intelligence technology, which is right up Jason's alley, in order to improve the efficiency and effectiveness of banking operations. It kind of it's designed to be a seamless platform that's accessible from anywhere there's an internet connection. Um, that really just improves banking. Just to kind of run down a couple of quick statistics. Um, bank uh, it's used by 1100 banks so far so even though this is a recent IPO it's not a tiny company by any means um, Some of its clients are Bank of America TD Bank Region's Bank um, so it's used by a lot of the big players in the industry for their tech for their technical needs um, and the, the statistics are pretty impressive um, just running through a few of the numbers uh, banks who use this saw account applications, improved by, or I'm sorry, loan closing times improved by 40%. Um, that's pretty impressive. Uh, in, overall banking efficiency improved by 22%. And in terms of growth, they saw account application completion rates, meaning that you know customers who start an application finish it, uh, improved by 127%, all while reducing service costs dramatically. So this is a it's designed to not only improve the banking experience but to make it more cost effective as well which a lot of these brick and mortar banks desperately need to compete with the the new wave of disruptors coming to the market
1: yeah it feels like the it feels like the old uh, old guard in in regard to banks the the sort of stereotype that, that we're so familiar with that's really it's changing in a lot of ways in the financials industry. You're seeing a lot of companies now these these fintech firms that are building themselves not as banks, but as really service companies that partner up with banks to to then be able to provide financial services and whatnot. I mean, w- within sino I mean again, this isn't a bank. This is this is essentially the technology. This is the operating system, and it offers everything from customer relationship management to account openings, loan originations, deposit accounts, credit analysis. I mean, the list goes on. And, and it's it's really impressive to see. I'm I'm, I'm impressed to see that uh, Bank of America is a customer as well. Um, I mean, in regard to how they make their money, and, and again, it's a young company, they're just kind of getting things going here. But I mean, is this primarily just a subscription business? Is there a, is there a transactional component
0: to it? Well, a little bit. They're, they're primarily a subscription business. That's what they're focused on growing. And just when you look at the recent numbers, uh, total revenue grew by forty-three percent in the last quarter. Subscription revenues up by fifty-six percent, and that's an ongoing trend that we're seeing. So the subscription part of their business is what's really being built out the most, and it's what you want to see as an investor too, because that's what's long-tailed and predictable revenue that you're going to get quarter after quarter after quarter. Um, it's also worth noting that they, um, this platform is based on Salesforce's architecture. Um, they use, they use sales, Salesforce's CRM technology. Um, Salesforce is a, a big shareholder of Encino. That's they own about 12% of the company.
1: Yeah, that, I saw that and thought, yeah, I mean, of course, the first thing that comes to mind is, I mean, is this just uh, Salesforce ultimately just take this thing over? Because with, with close to 12% of the shares, and the, it, it, listen, when I saw the description of the business, what they do, it's operating system offers customer relationship management. And for folks out there who wonder what that is, that CRM, I mean, that's specifically what Salesforce does. I mean, shoot, Matt, that's Salesforce's ticker.
0: Right, I mean, and this is Salesforce is, is all in on Encino, They're they're they've been very helpful building out the platform and build helping them build out the architecture. And it's it's really what set when you, when you want there. is not the only company that does what it does. This partnership with sales, Salesforce is a big differentiating factor, which is why I want to emphasize it so much. They they are you know the the, the most seamless integration into the banking process. And on Bank of America's, um, we mentioned we've talked about many times, <clears throat> excuse me, how Bank of America is the, by far the most tech inclined of the big four banks. So it's not a coincidence that they're the the first of the big four to really adapt Encino's uh you know, bank operating system and why their efficiency has improved so much. And we've talked about how their growth has been more impressive than other banks in recent quarters, because you know more people are opening accounts; they're not getting frustrated with the process. Um, so. It's it's an impressive company, and I think that the Salesforce partnership, if you will, is a big differentiator going forward.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess I was that was going to be the, the next question I asked. Really, is when you talk about this space, and I mean, there there is competition. I mean, this isn't just Encino's market. Uh, it, it, what I mean, would you consider their only real advantage that Salesforce relationship, or is is it the fact that Salesforce has really helped build this company up from that? From that uh, architecture, so to speak, that, that gives it a a more holistic service, right? A more holistic offering. I mean, what what ultimately is Encino's advantage beyond the Salesforce angle,
0: or is there one? Well, I would say that there's a big a uh, big first mover advantage going on there. Um, I mentioned they have a, about 1,100 customers right now. To put that in perspective, there are a little over 5,000 banks in the U.S. So okay. that's a pretty big market penetration so yeah, far like especially with some of those so, big yeah. names I mentioned not bad. And as I, me- I mentioned the statistics on how much they're saving their customers, how much more efficient they're making the loan process, for example. as more more banks join the platform, as those statistics really get out there, you, you get this kind of network effect where other banks are seeing the value in the platform. At some point, you know, J.P. Morgan Chase, Citigroup, and Wells Fargo are going to see how much more efficient Bank of America is getting <laughs> because of this, and might take a closer look at the platform. You know, I mean, and you know, Regions' comp- uh, direct competitors are going to see how, mu- how much it's helping Regions and say we need that. So it's definitely a network effect. And if if their software is really as good as it seems to be, then having eleven hundred customers already using it is the best growth advantage you can have.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, anytime you can have anytime you can have that that sort of grassroots movement, so to speak, where just the customers that are using your service are just praising it. And then you're seeing the results from your competitors, and they're bringing those results down to the bottom line. I mean, banks, especially these days, are trying to figure out any which way they can really to to eke out as much profitability in this low interest rate environment. So certainly, could see the longer term road there, uh, the longer term opportunity there for for Encino. Let's talk a little bit about management, because I, I was interested to see with Encino. I mean, there there is there are, there are a few co-founders of the business and one is still if if i'm correct here the ceo of the business today uh what do what do you know about management um i know they're
0: doing a pretty good job um, <laughs> <laughs> no <I'm laughs> that came out wrong <laughs> <laughs> no it came out right i like what you said let's just dig into that a little deeper <laughs> Every time that, that I do a, a premium write-up on a company or do really research into a company, I check out the, the what the employees have to say, because um, that's how you can learn a lot about the management team and, how, and the culture they're they're forming. Um, 99% of the employees approve of the CEO's job performance. Um, so That's a pretty impressive statistic. It's really rare that you see that. Um, if you don't believe me, go to glassdoor.com and, and type in you know the next 10 companies that come to mind i bet you, you won't see any 99s on there for hey, for ceo and i mean i'm
1: i'm not bringing you on this show to to great. i believe you you've earned some <laughs> credibility
0: with me well <laughs> it, he's he's a visionary ceo he's he's this is not his first venture he was um s1 corporation I refer to them he was one of the, oh, yeah, one yeah. Of the mm-hmm. he was one of their key players um so he's it, it, he's proven his ability to lead in fintech which is really tough to do Um, I mean, we talk about people, you know, great CEOs, great founders have poor leadership skills all the time. Um, I mean, we've seen founders come and go over the years, and he's a proven founder, I guess you would call it. I think that's a good way to put it. I mean, you see a lot of businesses out there where
1: the founder kind of hits a level, they hit a ceiling. And, and right, just, and we can can saw only that in Green so Dot. Um, yeah.
0: Green Dot's yeah. one that we covered That we just saw that. I'm not calling Steve Street, who was the founder of Green Dot, a poor leader by any means, but he hit a ceiling, as you said, um, and had to and ended up having to move on. And they brought in some new blood, and I, and that's not happening here. And he's we've gotten to 1,100 institutions, and and still growing rapidly. Uh, we mentioned uh, subscriber growths growing at more than a 50 percent annualized pace, and that's during the COVID pandemic. Um, when a lot of banks, I mean, b- banking was one of the most affected sectors. When a lot of banks are pumping the brakes on spending, they're still growing at a, at over a fifty percent rate. Um, remember, I mean, b- banks are are pr- being cautious. They're they're lowering dividends in some cases. They're not buying back stock. They're 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 being very cautious on spending, and they're still seeing enough value in this platform to be spending more money on it than they were a year ago.
1: Yeah, you know, I would say I, we could talk a little bit about the risks with a business like this. I mean, it's it's interesting to me. We see with with the I, I think three different co founders involved with the business still, at least in some ownership capacity. It's something like four and a half percent of the of the company that those co founders still own. Um, I guess yeah. It's, it, question one is is does a bank see this? Does a bank see Encino as an essential service? So even if it, even if times get tough. It, it it almost feels like this isn't a service they can really cut back on. Perhaps they could put the brakes on expanding the relationship, but it doesn't seem like something they could just, well, let's go ahead and cut that subscription. We don't really need it right now, especially for banks that have used it even longer. I mean, there, there is a there is an absolute switching cost that comes with using a business like this. And if it's taking away from what you're able to offer to your customers in the first place, I mean, you cut services like that, you risk that customer defection and they typically aren't going to come back.
0: Right, and that's this is a great model for customer retention, especially with those figures I mentioned earlier. Just the the big one, improving the overall efficiency of the business by twenty two percent. If you're worried about your profits over the next year or so, as most banks are in the COVID pandemic, you don't want your efficiency to be reduced by twenty two percent because you canceled this this product. So it 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 generally it it doesn't necessarily sell itself. I'm sure it, it, Encino's customer acquisition cost is not cheap. I don't have the figure right in front of me for that, but I'm sure it's you know landing a client like Bank of America, especially. I'm sure it's not easy. But once you have, once they have subscribers, if those, assuming those numbers are true that they're putting out, this is a product that that will the retention should be there. This should have a near hundred percent retention rate if that's true. Oh yeah, if, I would think so. You know, if account openings are growing by hundred twenty-seven percent. On banks that are using this platform, like they're claiming, or if 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 loan co- if loan servicing costs are reduced by ninety percent, which is what they're claiming, if those are true, then I could think of no good reason a bank would want to cancel this, unless Encino's platform is too expensive, which it doesn't seem to be the case.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'd imagine I'd imagine that's the case, and I mean, if you look at just the the general investor sentiment, so to speak. I mean, if we look at, I mean, there's some numbers you can look at at least to get an idea of, of sort of how investors are viewing this company. Um, the shares outstanding around 92.3 million. And only about 48% of those shares float. So only about 48% of that of that 92.3 million actually trades out on the open market, which means there's about 44 million shares that trade. And so of those 44 million shares that trade, you've only got about 3 million of those shares sold short which is 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 a for a business that still hasn't hit that that profitability number yet right for a business that is trading at these kinds of multiples I mean when I say these kinds of multiples you're talking about 40 times sales you're talking about 73 times gross profit but to see that low of of a short interest uh I, I mean you know listen that tells a tale i mean that tells you something at least the investor sentiment they probably see see a bright future for a company like this and aren't willing to bet against it at least not now
0: for sure it is willing to it is important to um to double down on what you just said that this is not a cheap stock by any means so like you said over 40 times sales this there is a lot of growth already priced into this company the market assumes that it's going to keep that 50% growth rate going for some time so investors seem to have a lot of faith. like you said, this is not a, a major short target or anything like that. Um, but it, it is it is not a cheap stock. so that's something that I always try to you know let people know that if if growth were to unexpectedly slow, that's when you see a stock like this come under pressure. So there it's it's a fast growing stock. it's priced for it. I think the valuation is more than justified to be perfectly clear and it's not profitable even on an on an adjusted basis which a lot of these growth companies are. So it it's it has a clear path to profitability if it keeps going. This is a pretty high margin business. But right now it's pretty much investing anything it can in growth. It's got over almost 400 million dollars in cash on its balance sheet right now. So it it can afford to to lose money. It's losing a few million a quarter. It's got almost 400 million on its balance sheet. So it can afford it. So there, there's no financial worries to be clear, um, but it, it's it's got a path to profitability, but it's not there yet. So keep that in mind too.
1: Yeah, and I say you know the one of the businesses that uh, this reminded me of just just to to a certain degree it was Ellie May and you know the uh, the mortgage software provider that, that we talked so much about before they were acquired. Um, it, it just seems like they offer a, a pretty compelling value proposition for some really important customers. And as time goes on, you see switching costs, you see network effects. I mean, at some point or another, maybe they can exercise a little pricing power. I, I, I'm with you. The valuation to me is one where I, I'd, I'd be a little bit curious as to. to how far? How how much of that growth is is priced in today? Uh, but but at, at first glance, I tell you this is a very interesting business. I'm I'm very, um, ready to dig in and learn a little bit more. I I think I'd have this one at the top of my radar for sure.
0: Yeah, no, this one is definitely. It's been on my watch list since I first heard about it. Um, like I said, it's it's priced. It's a little. I I tend to be more of a value investor than most people here. You know that, so sure, yeah. So I have to really be sold to pull the trigger on a growth stock. <laughs> um, well, that's understandable for sure. We have mentioned a few that I've. I mean, I mean, lemonade really sold me. That's one that we talked about recently. But but I really have to be sold to pull the trigger on a growth stock, and this one is toward the top of my list. I mean, I've, I want to see what the, how how their um, their customer count's growing, how their their revenue retention, which we don't have too much um, great data on just yet because they're recently public. I want to see that the, you know, their existing customers are spending more over time, which will indicate that there is they're they're seeing value in the platform. Um, so I'd like to see stuff like that, but it's definitely one that's on the top of my watch list. Well, Matt, we're seeing
1: signs that companies and leaders are starting to grow a little weary with California. Elon Musk recently moved to Texas. Now, Oracle has announced it's moving its headquarters to Texas. Uh, and, and Matt, I, I understand the sentiment. Uh, there's some concerns in, in regard to regulatory uh, issues, taxes, yada yada yada. I'll read a quick note here from a uh, quick quote here from Elon Musk, where he said, "Quote: If a team has been winning for too long." They do tend to get a little complacent, a little entitled, and then they don't win the championship anymore. California has been winning for too long, and I think they're taking them for granted a little bit, them being the the business people and the innovators. Uh, Matt, we're seeing businesses and companies continuing to look at leaving California for one reason or another as remote work becomes more a consideration, more an opportunity. It, It feels like, to me, this is something we may see some more of here in the coming year, And we were talking over the weekend about this. It seems like it's got to be a catalyst for a handful of real uh, real estate-oriented stocks out there, right?
0: Yeah, well, it's good for some and bad for others. So, um, uh, just to add to that list, uh, hewlett Packard's another one that's leaving California. Um, So, first of all, why are companies leaving California? Um, High taxes, extremely high costs of living in Silicon Valley, which also translates to high costs of employment. Um, I can't. I don't remember the exact data, but I remember the average salary at Facebook something like three hundred thousand a year, and and the reason it's not because Facebook pays its employees like exorbitant amounts of money. It's because it costs that much to live in Silicon Valley. Um, so it's it's not just a remote work thing. It's a it's a cost saving thing. Um, question number two is why Texas? Um, I like Texas. I've been to Texas. But, um, those state income taxes. No state income taxes. Real estate is relatively cheap. If a company wants to, you know, get a couple dozen acres of land and build a new headquarters, it's a lot cheaper to do in Texas than in Silicon Valley. Um you know the no state income taxes. Miami is another popular destination for that reason. I um, can't remember which company said they were thinking of, they were moving to Miami, um, but there there was one big one that said they're they're um, or Goldman Sachs said they're bringing a lot of their operations down to Miami. Um, so that's another. And Florida has no state income tax, um, which is another big motivator. And the weather's nice. So that, it's kind of like it's kind of like Silicon Valley on the East Coast, like weather-wise. I guess you'd call it.
1: Yeah, yeah, maybe uh, a little rainier. Well, I don't know. Yeah, a little, rainier. little rainier,
0: but a yeah. little rainier but warm. You know, tech yeah. guys don't like it cold for whatever reason. <laughs> yeah. Um. So one question before I get into some real estate things: Do other cities have to worry about the same thing? Which, if it's a remote work thing, they do. Um, if it's if the thesis is pe- people are going to be able to work remotely, they're not going to want to do it where it's expensive. They're they're going to leave. Then other cities have to worry, but I don't think it. I don't think cities like New York have as quite as much to worry about. One, Maybe New, not. Maybe yeah, not. one one New York doesn't have nearly as many company headquarters, uh, especially in the tech industry. Um, as Silicon Valley does, what, what companies are headquartered in New York? Mostly financial service companies, financial
1: capital of the world. Yep.
0: Because they need a good proximity to Wall Street, and that, I mean Wall Street's not moving. Nope. Um, no. I don't, I don't. I don't. I, I don't think Wall Street itself is going to relocate to Texas.
1: Very doubtful.
0: Um, Although that so, would be
1: pretty cool. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> you know, all so of it, a sudden now you've got plenty of barbecue catered lunches and. Afternoon siestas, just kind of a little bit more of a laid back work day. That'd be pretty sweet,
0: actually. Oh, oh yeah, I mean, you can make the case for it, but that doesn't yeah. mean it's going to happen. Um, but point being, I think this is a disproportionately California issue. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, it's more than other cities. So, having said that, when it comes to real estate, when you, if you look at just office real estate, I would avoid any companies that have outsized exposure to California. Um, Boston Properties is one. Despite its name, it has a lot of San Francisco properties. Uh, ticker symbol is BXP. That's actually the biggest office REIT in the market. Um, but I would look at some of the more localized ones. I know I talk about Empire State Realty more than anyone wants to hear me talk about it. <laughs> um, ticker symbol on that one's ESRT. But they are localized to New York. So if you think that people are still going to want to live and work in New York City, that's one to look at. That's a big holding of mine. Um, one of the more interesting, or, or I'll give you two more interesting plays that I really like on this kind of Exodus from California. Um, one is Howard Hughes Corporation. I don't know if yeah. you're familiar with that company. I the am. Ticker symbol is HHC. They are a master plan community developer with a particular concentration in Texas. Um, their two flagship, or their their biggest, their flagship master plan community is the Woodlands in the Houston area. Yeah. Um, they have a couple a more in th- there, right? They have a couple more in the Houston area. They were very beaten down during during the uh, COVID pandemic. Um, not only is are they, well, they also have a big presence in Las Vegas, which is t- a terrible place to be right now, um, in terms of owning property. But they're also very levered to the oil industry because of their location in Texas. Um, one of their biggest office tenants is Occidental Petroleum, for example. Um, so the the oil fears have really beaten down property values there. But if now if that's going to become a tech capital, there's a whole new opportunity to build out their their Texas business. Um, a lot of their Texas communities are nowhere near being fully built out yet. Um, so that could be a major catalyst for Howard Hughes going forward if the if Texas in particular is a stays a popular destination. Um, and the other one, from the residential point of view, talking about the work from home trend, uh, Mid America Apartments. Uh, ticker symbol on on that one is MAA. I think their official name is now MAA, not Mid America Apartments anymore. But whatever. Um, they specialize in Sunbelt apartment communities. These are cheaper areas, low cost of living, where people, if they want to, if they can work from home and can work somewhere cheaper, these are like markets like Charlotte, Atlanta. You know the the cities that people who want city life but want a lower cost of living can go. Uh, Mid America Apartments is a really interesting name in that space. So I think they're, they're, this is a very, like, just to reiterate, a very California specific problem. I don't think if you're invested in, say, the New York City area or the Boston area or the DC area that you're going to see this. Um, I know I, the Motley Fools based in the DC area. I don't, I don't think they have any plans to go to Texas, but no nope. no nope, we ask. don't. <laughs> <laughs> not,
1: not specifically. I mean, not, we're not picking up the headquarters and moving it to Texas, no.
0: Right. And it, it's it's it, it's a tech industry in California problem is the point. So, um the remote work trend is real. There are going to be a lot of people who work remotely after the pandemic who didn't work remotely before, which is why I think it could be a real catalyst to apartment communities based in those kind of lower cost cities. Um, And uh, like I said, Howard Hughes, a big Texas developer, um, really the only publicly traded company of its kind in terms of being a master plan community builder. Think of them as a real life version of the video game SimCity. You know, like they, they sell some residential land to developers. Those developers put houses there that adds demand for commercial assets like office buildings, which they'll build and collect rent on. Those commercial assets make the land around it more valuable, which they'll sell to builders at higher costs, and it's just like a cycle that repeats. Um, it's a really interesting business model. I'd highly encourage you to check out the company if you've never heard of them. Um, but those are my those are my ways to play the the California exodus, and I don't think we've seen the last of of these big companies leaving Silicon Valley.
1: Yeah, yeah, I tend to agree with you. I think, those, I think those wheels are in motion for a lot of folks, and um, I, I don't know that there's any really turning back turning back the clock now, but I guess we shall see. Uh, Matt, let's wrap this up with One to Watch. We like to give our listeners a couple of stocks to keep on their radar for the coming week. What is your One to Watch this coming week?
0: I am watching another real estate company called Public Storage. Uh, pretty much everyone's familiar with Public Storage, Those big orange storage buildings that are all over the country. You know that um, I'm, I'm sure there's one within a mile or two of where Jason's sitting right now.
1: Most likely,
0: <laughs> um, they're everywhere. There's, I would think, over three thousand of them in, in the country. They're a real estate investment trust, and they recently had a, a big activist come um, uh, come in and you know get nominate some directors for the board. This is a company that's been very complacent for a while, in my opinion. I'm a shareholder myself, but if you go to, like, for example, if you go to Public Storage's investor relations webpage. They don't do things like like making investor presentations. They don't do an investor day each year. They're really not a investor focused company at the moment. So the fact that an, an activist um, is really coming into play doesn't really surprise me, um, and it's it's a welcome change. And I th- I've I've said that their investor relations department needs an overhaul for some time. <laughs> not necessarily their growth strategy. I, I mean, they're they're by far the dominant self storage player in the country. I think they're bigger than their their next three rivals combined but there I do think there are some opportunities to unlock shareholder value that I'd like to see them explore. So, I'm a bit I'm a big fan of Public Storage's business and even more so now. So, that's one I'm watching right now.
1: And what's the ticker again for Public Storage?
0: Uh, PSA Okay. Well, I am going to be digging a little bit deeper
1: into a company called Corn Fairy, and this is one I don't think we've really ever talked about on this show, and it's one I dug into uh, for a recent episode of Market Foolery with Chris Hill a couple weeks back. Um, Corn Fairy, I'm sure a lot of Folks may out there actually recognize the name as the Developmental Golf Tour, the step below the PGA Tour. Um, it, it's actually a consulter, right? It's in consulting, and it's just a little $2 billion company. But consulting is a really great gig, and you can build a heck of a business around it over time if you got a if you got a good network. And and like I said, this is a small company, but it's one that's growing slowly but surely. Um, the interesting thing about their consulting business, about 20% of – of their businesses devoted towards the financial services industry. I mean, we we figure all all those consulting companies do have a fair amount of exposure to to financial services, and Cord Ferry is is no exception there. Uh, A a strong collection of offerings in consulting and digital um, they they have executive search and RPO or, or recruitment process outsourcing and professional search. Uh, the interesting thing I found about the business, though, was that approximately 71% of their revenue comes from clients that utilize multiple lines of the business. So, it seems like they're doing something uh, that people like and, and that people are coming back for more of. And given its size, uh, it, it strikes me as a business that uh, could potentially have some more opportunity on the horizon. So, I'm going to continue to dig in there and see uh, see what that opportunity may be. Well, Matt, I think that's going to do it for us this week. So, uh, hey, listen, it was great seeing you again. Thanks for taking the time to be with us, and I'm looking forward to next week as well.
0: I am too. I, I, I wish we could say more, but you'll just have to tune in to see who
1: it is. Yep, you will have to tune in. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Thanks, as always, to Tim Sparks for putting the show together for us. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.